If you would please join me in turning in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. We'll be picking up where we left off last week in Exodus 20, 12. As we continue in our worship here, my, my heart's full of a, a thousand things that I would love to share and I'll give you at least two <laughs> out of the thousand. One of them was uh, this Thursday in TAG, which is our, our youth ministry. We had been talking about the, the blessing of confessing our sins from Psalm 32. The, the blessing that we get from confessing our, our sins is, well, knowing that they've been forgiven. It's, it's the joy of knowing that God does what he promises to do when we confess and turn to him and I told him, we should sing, there is a fountain together sometime soon. And sure enough, in the God's providence, apart from my requesting it, we just so happened to sing that song. And so I commend that to you know, your meditation and ministry to your soul as you stand at the kitchen sink and you open up that fountain to wash your dishes that you can think of that fountain that comes from Emmanuel's veins. I also, when we sing the song, uh, Behold Our God. This was a song that was uh, prominent and significant at the Bible camp in Alaska. Some of the natives had learned that song and wanted to be able to lead their friends in singing it together. And we actually have a, a Cochrane Hills Bible Camp debrief meeting that's happening uh, after our service today. And I wanted to request that we sing that song, and I forgot to, but we did it anyways. So it's just a, a reminder that the, the chief shepherd is with us. You know, even when we forget to do things, you know, he, he doesn't. He knows how to, to, to bless us in such ways. And that particular song, you know, I, th I thought, why did these kids pick this song? You know, of all the songs that they could pick to learn and sing, you know, why this one? And, you know, this is just my, my own thoughts on why they picked that. But they... they these kids in these villages have to grow up a little bit too fast. They have to deal with experiencing and seeing evils which you know, n nobody ought to have to experience or know about at that age. And there's something about a song like Behold Our God that it gives you this big God theology. You know, when you go through suffering that's perplexing and it, and it, and it hurts and you don't... It's hard to think your, your way through it, and it's disorienting. You need big God theology, and that's what that song is. And so I, I commend that to your meditation and to minister to your soul as well, to, to learn that song and to sing it while you walk through your yard or whatever you do. Well, today we're going to return to looking at the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words here in Exodus 2012, and as I'd been studying and trying to prepare how I would teach this text to you to honor the Lord and to serve you, it's, it's been my prayer that as we would hear God's word, that what he would work in our hearts is that, that sin would be way less appealing to us, and God would be way more satisfying to us. So let's pray that together as we come to approach this text. Our sovereign God, you were far more amazing and beautiful than we could ever imagine. 
we struggle to see you rightly and to know you and your fullness. And while we cannot comprehend you fully, we can comprehend you truly. We can know you as you are and as you have revealed yourself. We pray that you would show us your character through your word as we would study it. That you would show us how your salvation works and put us in awe of what you have done and are doing and will do. We pray that as we hear your word preached that sin would become way less appealing to us and your glory and your truth and your character would become way more satisfying to us. We pray that you would do a great sanctifying work in us and bear much fruit through this message for the sake of your name and our joy in you. Amen. The Ten Commandments were given in God's grace where he is graciously instructing a people that he had already delivered out of Egypt and into covenant relationship to him and these people, instead of getting ten plagues, they get ten words from God, which would lay out their conduct and how they were to live for him and enjoy that relationship in the, con the context of the Mosaic Covenant. These people, instead of being destroyed by the God of creation like the Egyptians, had been delivered by the God of creation, the God of creation who in the beginning of his word, he spoke exactly 10 times to instruct everything into existence. What I'm referring to here is the fact that when you start reading your Bible in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, is that this phrase, God said, shows up exactly 10 times. And the connection between those 10 God said statements in Genesis to the 10 plagues to the 10 words communicates that God is the God of creation, decreation, and recreation. And we would expect such intricacies in order in Scripture because Scripture is from the God who has intricately created and ordered everything in the universe for His purposes and for His glory. Here in Exodus, we're reading the book of the law, and the law is being given. And I think sometimes this word law is often misunderstood as rules. The word law doesn't mean rules. The word law means instruction. This is the book of instruction. The purpose of the law, or the Hebrew word for it, Torah, is to do what it means, to instruct. And understanding that simple truth will save you from a thousand, a thousand misunderstandings of what the law is and does. What the law does is it instructs and it points to certain truths. Namely, God is holy, man is sinful, and man needs a God-man mediator. Now, law-keeping doesn't establish a right relationship with God. God wasn't instructing people that, oh, if you keep these laws as rules, then you'll establish the relationship. Rather, the relationship comes first and then the blessing of knowing how to live and following God's instruction. To the unconverted, what the law does is it points out that they have a wrong relationship to God that needs to be made right by somebody else who isn't them. 
But to those who are converted, it instructs their conduct so that their lives will be a picture of God's character to others, to be a, a witness of his wisdom within his creation because people will know how to live in God's creation. The law is more about revelation of who God is than restriction on things that you can't do. It's about revealing God's holy character and confronting man's sinful character and instructing people toward their need for God to reorder everything that's disordered in this world. It instructs us towards how things are to be ordered in God's creation, including human relationships. So coming to commandment number five is where we're at. What's happening here is we're moving from commandments that are primarily about loving God instruction that are moving to love your neighbor instruction. So look here at Exodus 20, 12, and we'll read the fifth commandment here. The word of God reads, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. Now at this juncture and the ten words, the love of God instruction is meeting love of neighbor instruction. Uh, the God of creation has ordered the Ten Commandments in such a way that the first four are the, ba are the basis for the following five. And I'll kind of tell you how that connects as we go on and you can draw a little doodle. So you can think of the first two commandments, commandments one and two connect in to number Five, the vertical relationship of honoring God and having no other gods before him and not making idols, those two commandments connect into the horizontal relationship of commandment five of honoring one's father and mother. So honoring God translates into honoring your father and mother. So honoring your parents glorifies God because it, it testifies to the whole world that God's creation order is good because God is good. This is how you enjoy life in his world. And that the way that he has chosen to delegate his authority in, world, in the world and structure authority in the world, it's good. And this is the first commandment with a promise that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh, your God, gives you. Now, whether or not you honor God by honoring your parents, it, it has an effect of, on all of society. Uh, your sin never affects just you. It always affects other people. So you think these are love your neighbor laws. And the way that you love your neighbor here is by upholding God's design for the family and its authority structure and upholding its integrity. And as you know, where people fail to uphold and promote biblical family life, societies shorten their days in the land rather than prolong them. Now, the sixth commandment is found in verse 13, and it reads thus, you shall not murder. Now here you see these short commandments that are terse. It's just you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now these commandments six through nine come together as a, a package that are built on the basis of commandment number three. So if you're drawing out a little line, you have uh, commandment three and they 
Commandment three connects into six to nine. Now, commandment three was, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. Well, how do you take the Lord's name in vain? Well, by not loving your neighbor the way that you're commanded to in commandments six through nine. When you break commandments six through nine and how you live and not loving your neighbor, you take the Lord's name in vain. And these commandments here, six through nine, function like a, a bill of rights for your neighbor. This is a, a bill of rights for your neighbor, which I think has a, an interesting worldview implication for us because we think about rights not as something that we have but that our neighbor has. You know, we're, we're thinking about rights not in terms of what people should give me but what is owed to other people because they're made in God's image. The reason that it's wrong to murder is because God is a God of life and he has given your neighbor a right to life. You shall not murder because your neighbor has a right to life. And murder is wrong because man is made in God's image. I read that in Genesis 9, 6. And we were made to image God as a God of life. But you remember the first murderer, Cain, he failed to do that when he slew his brother Abel in Genesis 4. When you think on that, I also want to note here that this standard of protecting life wasn't waiting to be birthed on these tablets of stone hundreds of years later after Abel's martyrdom. Because the standard that God has judged people by has always been his character ordered in creation, not his law. God's standard is his character, not his law. And he's taught that and built that into his creation. So the law isn't the standard. You remember the law is instruction. God is the standard. And God's standard is ultimately aimed at the heart. God is the God of the heart, and he's interested in transforming, confronting what it is that's in you. You know this from how Jesus preached in Matthew 5 about the person who has murder in their heart. God isn't merely interested in you having better behavior. He's not interested in external conformity. He's interested in having your heart. He's interested in you loving him with everything that you are and from the outflow of that love to love your neighbor. He's not just looking for a more moral culture either. Israel here was never called simply to love God with all of their outward actions so that other nations might become more well-behaved by looking at how kind these people were. They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and strength. They were to love God with everything that was in them, everything that was in them that came out of them, and everything that was surrounding them. God wants you to image his pure heart in the world by having a pure heart that doesn't harbor anger that comes out in malicious words and even murder. Which brings us to the next commandment, which is another heart commandment that Jesus addressed. Verse 14, 
You shall not commit adultery. This commandment is intended to preserve God's original will for marriage. Uh, God alone defines marriage, and he defines it in his word this way in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One man, one woman, one flesh. There isn't another definition of marriage in all of creation. Uh, This is the only one. And the reason that adultery is wrong is because it tries to give a different definition, a a different explanation of what the God of creation is like. The reason that adultery is wrong is because God is always faithful to his covenant partner. Faithfulness in marriage is meant to reflect God's faithful character to the world. It's a picture of God's faithful love to his bride exclusively, saying yes to her and no to everybody else. And it's only within the marriage covenant that God's gift of sex can rightfully be enjoyed. There is no such thing as sex outside of marriage in Scripture. Sex outside of marriage is the world's thinking. God has not taught us to think that way in that category. Outside of the covenant of marriage, you can only have immorality and fornication. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can have a gift which is exclusive to marriage outside of marriage. You can only have a destructive counterfeit. This is like what Solomon taught to his son in Proverbs 7 when he said, Son, you need to learn to see that what she calls a couch is actually a coffin. That's the brown paraphrase Bible there. The God of creation is faithful in covenant relationship. Therefore, you shall image him by not ever being unfaithful ever. And concerning loving your neighbor and the keeping of this law, your neighbor on his bill of rights has a right to sexual purity that nobody would ever violate that in any way. Adulterous people not only threaten the well-being of family but also societal stability. It affects everybody. The next commandment here is found in verse 15 and it reads, you shall not steal. When we think about how this expresses the character of God, we know that the God of creation worked in order to give. Therefore, the way that we image him is by working so that we can be generous to other people. We're not to steal anything from our neighbor. And as this works itself out in application throughout Scripture, it is specified, and you're not to steal people from other people, whether they be slaves or workers. You're not to steal other people's possessions. They have a right to own those possessions and for people to not take them from them Uh, and to not steal somebody's purity or virginity. That is to belong only to one and nobody is ever to steal that from anybody else. And all of this is because our neighbor has a right to personal property and we uphold that Uh, when we love our neighbor by not stealing anything from them. 
And you think about how these commandments are being given specifically in the context of Israel as a nation that's to be a witness of God's character and salvation in the world. For them, how could they be a blessing to other nations if they were robbing one another? Uh, they couldn't. Likewise, we can't be a blessing to one another if we're stealing from one another rather than working together so that we can be generous to others together as some sort of display of the generous grace that Christ has shown us. The next commandment in verse 16 reads, you, share, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God cannot lie. Therefore, to image the God who cannot lie, we're to always tell the truth. His character is the standard for how we're to live. We're made to image him and to show others what he's like. This means that we're never to lie or to try to modify our lying as okay because we put the color of white in front of it. Uh, this means no deceit, no half-truths, no slander or gossip or backbiting or vilification or categorizing other people to just dismiss them. This would mean no tweeting like Twitter people. And you think about this being given to Israel as a nation and establishing their governance and a justice system for them within their nation, that telling the truth was absolutely critical to have a justice system because you can't have justice without an honest testimony. Without factual witnesses, a justice system fails to do what it exists for. An equitable justice system is necessary for a coherent society. The reason that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor is because your neighbor has a right to an honest testimony. And you love your neighbor when you do what you can to uphold what is true and to bring in other witnesses and to uphold their reputation and at other times to uphold what is just and right to protect others. You love your neighbor when you tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Verse 17, commandment 10, the final one, says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What is covet? Because you don't want to do that. You want to honor God, so you need to know what is covet so that I don't do that. Well, remember Eve. The same word covet was translated in Genesis 3, 6 when she saw this tree that was a delight to her eyes and that it was desirable to make one wise. That's the same word there, covet. That she coveted the wisdom that she was deceived into thinking she could get from that tree. You see, what coveting is, is it's desiring something that's unlawful for you. It's something that God hasn't given you. But it's also not because God has been holding out on you. It's because God is good and he's given you good things. And when you covet, 
you're believing that God isn't good. He hasn't given me good things. He hasn't put me in a good situation. Uh, I deserve things that are different and better, and I define good and not him. Covetousness is also like the idea of a lack of contentment. It's lack of contentment in what God has provided for you. Because in the moment that you're discontent, you're thinking, this isn't good what God has given me. I deserve better. What you, as we've gone through Exodus, we've seen this in the grumbling, idolatrous hearts of the Israelites. They thought they deserved bread in the wilderness or water whenever they demanded it. That they had a right to complain because things should be different for them because, you know, they're them and they're entitled to certain things and God should do what he wants when they want and they should never have to suffer. The Tenth Commandment, as we had talked about how these parallel in the first four, the Tenth Commandment is built on the basis of the Fourth Commandment, which you remember it's, the Fourth Commandment is the Sabbath laws. It's, uh, it's about resting in God So how does covetousness relate to the fourth commandment? Well, it's you, covetousness is you not resting in God. You're not enjoying what he has given you today in his wisdom. You're not believing that it's good. You're not resting in how God has chosen to protect you today. You're not resting in how God has chosen to provide for you today. You're not resting in how God is guiding you today. And this commandment in particular really goes to the heart of the matter which is the matter of the heart and the covetousness that is so often found in ourselves it it prosecutes the heart and shows you that you're not resting in God Uh, it kills you this commandment moves inward and it shows that all other previous actions of the other commandments addressed it, they, they come from a backwards heart that doesn't want to submit to God's authority in the first commandment, ultimately. As you know, graveyards look very beautiful on the surface, but if you go digging around in them, you'll find dead men's bones. You can look good on the outside and merely be a whitewashed tomb, Here we see clearly that what the law does is that it gives a knowledge of sin. However you might look to other people on the outside, God is concerned about your heart and what is in it. It points out your sin and the fact that you're dead in your sin apart from God making you alive. And so Paul commenting on this and the function of the law in Romans 7, he says, What shall we say then? If this is the function of the law, then is the law sin? May it never be. Rather, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, worked out in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So you see how the law is working as an instructor. It's saying, look at what you have inside of you. Paul goes on, Now, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And this commandment, which was to lead to life, was found to lead to death for me. 
So he's recognizing law-keeping doesn't lead to life. It points out that you're dead. It says, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. In Exodus 20:17, the 10th commandment is specific here in addressing one's wife, slaves, animals, and anything else that might belong to your neighbor. And coming back to that concept of the Bill of Rights for your neighbor, it's communicating that your neighbor has a right to, to home and household security. A serious lack of love is seen in our hearts when we love people's stuff more than people. And God's Torah, as we've discussed, isn't aimed at just having an external obedience to it. It's, it's aimed at addressing a person's soul. Evil in the heart is a precursor to evil in somebody's actions. And when we understand this about ourselves, it helps us to recognize the seriousness of what we allow to go on in us. The things that we uh, allow ourselves to think about in our minds and to meditate on and to imagine. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Psalm 4.23 is communicating to this, the wisdom, you need to guard your heart. You need to be training it in righteousness. And it's, you know, it's assuming that your heart's going to be fighting against this, that there's going to be a battle with sin, and that you're going to need to be guarding your heart because whatever is in there is going to come out of there in all sorts of ways that you wouldn't expect. When we don't recognize the capacity of evil which can reside in our own hearts, we end up living with a self-righteousness which is ultimately self-deception. This law to not covet had implications for Israel as a national entity and community, which it gave them a focus on the community that they were in. Uh, they weren't to have some sort of class warfare of the people who were the haves and the other people who were the have-nots. They were to have a governing structure that would prevent a covetous climate of envy and hostility, which makes it impossible for people to work together for the good of others in enjoying some picture of the rest of God in the world. God's covenants and law instruction are given to us so that we can know what his character is like, but they're also given to us so that we can make him known, so other people can see his character in us. And the better that we know him, the better that we're going to be able to be satisfied in him because we'll know how to walk in his wisdom. And the better we know him and how to walk in him, the better we'll be able to make him known to others. He is a holy God who gives us his holy words so that we would be a holy people and make his holiness known to all peoples. Moving on to Exodus 20 and verse 18, there begins to be a transition here that goes back through 
emphasizing loving God and then loving the neighbor. And what happens with the law here is it, it, it's going on to explain how do you apply these ten words? How do you live by them? And God is giving you know, the children of Israel examples of how to apply these things. Now, as we had discussed, God didn't just want a well-behaved nation. A well-behaved nation. He wanted a nation that was focused on knowing him and being satisfied in him and making him known. He wanted a a nation that would function like a a living, breathing gospel tract that was displaying the holiness of God, confronting the sinfulness of man, and pointing out people's need for a God-man mediator who could reconcile holy God and sinful man. For the government of Israel, Israel, if if they would walk in the fear and the wisdom of God, they would be a blessing to other nations by instructing them in the blessing of what it looks like to walk in the fear and wisdom of God. Now, even though the Mosaic covenant is described as obsolete in Hebrews 7.13 because we have a new covenant in Christ, These laws that we're reading are still instructive. They're still instructive in principle because they're built on creation principles. They're built on God's character being expressed in the world. And while the application might look different under the administration that God had under Moses to the administration we have in moving from Moses' house to living as being Jesus' house, The creation principles are transcendent from age to age. The creation principles remain through though the covenant practice changes. Hold on to those two words, principles and practice. The principles are the same, but the practice changes in age from age. So same principles, though different practices. For example, when we take the Lord's Supper, we don't slaughter a Passover lamb, but we celebrate the new covenant lamb supper because Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been slain, and we celebrate remembering his death and resurrection when we partake of the cup and the bread. The law is summarized in love God love neighbor, and it was given as a gift, not a burden, which only the regenerate heart could truly understand. And the very beginning of the law is given in grace. Remember, Yahweh had already delivered Israel out of Egypt, and it wasn't because they had done something for him. They hadn't performed something for him, and he thought, these people are great. I need to deliver them and have them as part of my team so I can carry out my plan. Uh, They didn't perform anything that was worthy of this deliverance. So why did he deliver them? Well, he delivered them not because of their performance, but because of his promise. He had made a promise to uh, build a nation from Abraham that would extend to Isaac and to Jacob and his 12 sons and to make them as many and numerous as the stars of the sky, which He has done, and he is doing at this point in Scripture. And you'll notice in this section, as you read through it, that there's a change of language from the word, using the word you, like you shall not murder, to if. 
you know, if this happens, then do this. So there's this transition to what we could call test cases. So it's like, well, how do you apply living by the ten words? Well, if this happens, do this. He's going through and he's giving them some test cases or examples. Now, he's not given an, an exhaustive book on every possible application. Otherwise, the Bible would be uh, ginormous and you wouldn't be able to carry your own copy to, to church. I guess you could like on a, you know, a digital thing or whatever, but you know, I don't recommend that. It's distracting. I, they don't even let uh, gorillas look at people's cell phones at the zoo because it uh, messes up their uh, relational abilities and stuff like that, you know? So if we won't do it for gorillas, don't do it to your kids either. That's a, that's a side point. So God provides, you know, sufficient examples and test cases. He, he gives them you know, needed paradigms and patterns so that those who are in the place of being judges and making decisions, they, they would have a precedent to work from. They would have something that was similar enough that we, they could go, oh, this case is like that, and we can look at this one and know what God wants us to do. And this section of Scripture, it moves from matters of loving God to loving neighbors, uh, especially the neighbors who suffer injustice or oppression, which really highlights the priorities of Israel's covenant king. Uh, he, he loves people who have suffered injustice. Uh, he loves those who are oppressed, and he loves to, to give them justice and to give them freedom and to deliver them, as we've seen happen with Israel going out of Egypt. Now let's read this text. We'll pick up in verse 18 and read through 26 and this section, I think, focuses on loving God, well, starting in 2018. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and the people perceived it, and they shook and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may be with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance, but Moses came near the dense gloom where God was. Then Yahweh said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. And if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. You see, Israel's response in the beginning of this section is that they had no desire to approach the presence of a holy God. They were learning through God's law instruction that they needed a mediator between 
them as sinners and God as holy. And this is exactly what I've been saying over and over that the law does. It, it points to God's holiness and it points out man's sinfulness and it points to the fact that there needs to be a God-man mediator. And the law's reflection of God's holiness functions both as a window and a mirror. God's holiness is reflected in his law as both, it's both a window and a mirror. It's, it's a window into seeing God and his creation rightly. It's a window through which we see his character and how he wants us to live in his creation. But it's also a mirror which shows us the reality of our sinfulness. And the way that Moses replies to the Israelites, he tells them that they were not to be afraid because God's purpose wasn't to kill them but to test them, to, to point out their wrong fear and to point them toward a, a true fear and reverence of God. And the way that they react is by standing at a distance, recognizing they can't approach God however they want and live. But the frightening thing that in the midst of this is God was approaching them. And God's purpose was not only to provide his instruction, but we see what he wanted to provide for these people was not just instruction, but his presence. You remember, he's the God who is with his people. He wanted his presence to be with them that they would fear him by walking in him as the preoccupation of their life that they might not sin against him. And when we read that in this narrative section of scripture as we read the the plot developing that also gives us a perspective on ourselves that god ought to be the preoccupation of our life so that we we might not sin against him though these people here as we've read about they couldn't raise themselves to god's requirements and even though even though god knows that they can't meet his requirements he never lowers his standard ever but rather what he promises to do is to raise his people up to it. He promises to do for them the thing that they can't do. So you see what's happening is he's pointing out their neediness. They need somebody to be a substitute law keeper for them. What will remain is God's holy character. God isn't going to change the standard of his holy character, but what is being pointed out is that human hearts need to be changed by another aspect of God's character, which is his grace. God's desire is that they would have such a heart to fear him and to keep all of his commandments. And this will be realized in the new covenant where God promises and accomplishes giving new hearts. Now, in understanding implications and applications of God's law, this is kind of like a brief little hermeneutical lesson here. When Bible interpretation, we understand what a text says, and uh, after understanding what it says, it's, well, it has implications. It has applications for us as well, and what's going to happen here in Scripture as we are uh, beginning to turn a corner here is we're seeing the ten words being applied Yahweh, the covenant redeemer, has spoken, therefore there's an implication 
You look at verse 23. Here's an implication. Because Yahweh, the only God of creation, has spoken, implication, you shall not have other gods besides me. Uh, It has implications for how you think and how you live. So then, well, it's like, well, what's a tangible sort of application of that? If we're not to, you know, worship you like that, then how how do we worship you? Well, he explains, you can build an altar this way, but not any other way. You can do these sacrifices this way, but you can't do them in any other way. Because God has a specific way that he wants his name to be remembered. And he doesn't want to be made known wrongly through wrong worship. So the application as it extends you know, beyond Israel to us is remembering that God is holy and he is to be feared exclusively. We're not to have uh, any other gods before him. Uh, any, any, we're not to accept the world's wisdom in place of God's wisdom ever. But it also teaches us that how we worship God matters. We're only to worship him exactly the way that he has instructed and not in any other ways. So love for God commandments, that's the first four commandments, they translate into our love for our neighbor in commandments 6 through 10. And these implications and applications of God's 10 words continue to get spelled out in chapter 21, specifically in regard to human life. And I'm going to, I'm not going to finish this sermon today. Okay, so in Exodus chapter 21, I'm going to start with the first 11 verses here, but as we start working through these sections, what what I want you to think about is God isn't giving these laws to these people just to say, you know, here's how you have a moral society. Here's how you can be uh, well-behaved and things will go well for you. There's way more going on in that. that All of these laws are showing them... this is how you can show what my, my character is like in this aspect of life. This is how you can show the world how my salvation works, even in how you think about slavery laws, personal injury laws, personal property laws, societal and Sabbath laws. So kind of think about this. You know, at, at any point in the book of Exodus, you know, if you're asking the question, you know, what did this teach Israel about God and his salvation? If you're focusing on answering that question, you'll get the point of the book. So if you keep that in the back of your mind while we start to work through this here, I'll start with the first 11 verses in chapter 21. Now, these are the judgments which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God and He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. Then his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. And if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male 
slaves do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his treachery to her. And if he designates her for his son, he shall do to her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes for himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Here, honor of God is being translated and honoring human life and as a gospel testimony of redemption, of retribution, of restitution and rest giving. The law being applied here is not merely for a better society or human flourishing, but the application of the law is meant to be a display of the character of God and how his salvation works. And here we're seeing these slave laws being given to Israel as both discipleship and for evangelism. First one says, these are the judgments. Now, the, these are the judgments of the judge. These are the decisions that you're to make because God teaches you how to make decisions. And the decisions that you're to make are based on how God instructs you to think about these things. Uh, this is how you're to think and how you're to act concerning the following. Slavery here is seen as a, a way to pay a debt. Uh, this is you know, different than perhaps how we would initially think about slavery, but it, it's kind of more like when you take on a mortgage. <laughs> you, you, now you're, you're a slave and you owe somebody some money and you have to work to pay it off somehow. And that's what people would do when they, they would have a debt to somebody else and the way that they paid it was by working to pay off a loan. And when it was paid, it was done. You know, there, there weren't hidden fees or uh, some like hidden cost for paying it off early or something like that. But also, you know, think about this in terms of salvation, somebody else in the family can be the worker. There can be a substitute worker who can pay your debt for you and redeem you. Is that one pretty obvious on how that like connects to the gospel and stuff? All right, I've got some nods and smiles. We're good. So you could redeem other family members by offering to, to pay their debt in their place. As you saw in verse 2, the slavery time had a limit of six years. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, they're locked into 30 years. I could do it in 30 years. Let's put you into like another 30 years or like 50 or 100 or something crazy like that and make your children's children pay for it. But you see the, the grace of God built in even into the time. Like if you were going to have somebody in debt to you paying a debt, uh, it had to fit in the six years. Uh, and if somebody was unable to redeem a family member, they could just wait till the seventh year. And the, in the seventh year, they, they get to go free. So whatever the debt was, you had to make sure it could be paid off in that amount of time because any way about it, they're going free in the seventh year, which you, you get the, the connection there into God's Sabbath rest. Like people, uh, you have to enter into it. You know, everything in creation, its goal is to enter into his rest. And Israel was to display that to the whole world by having this law. So, well, you know, the other nations say, 
you know, Mr. Israel, why do you let your slaves go in the seventh year? It's like, well, because God has designed all of his creation to enter into his rest, which he taught us about in the seventh day. That's why we have slave laws that are like this, so that I can be a gospel track to you, Mr. Canaanite. Slaves are purchased, redeemed. They're set apart to somebody else and able to go free without payment in that seventh year. But somebody can do that for you is a point that we've been bringing out. And we see that in Jesus' teaching in John 8 where he answered the Pharisees, or they answered him rather. They said, we are Abraham's seed and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Obviously, they hadn't, you know, read the Bible or understood, you know, Rome. <laughs> okay, sin makes you stupid. Proverbs 12. Moving on. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. So you see, he's, he has these slave laws in, in mind. He's like, you guys know that in the seventh year they, they go free. But it's like, well, I mean, who, who makes you free? And, you know, we read about, you know, so, somebody loving their master and belonging to him permanently. Then he says, but the son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So he was saying, I'm the point of the slavery laws, and you guys are enslaved, and I'm the only one who can set you free to belong to me permanently and forever. So what about involuntary slavery? That gets picked up uh, later in Scripture. It's uh, described as kidnapping, uh, and it's punishable by death and it goes on to explain later that if you do the slave laws wrong you die and the reason that you die for it is because you mess up the salvation picture that God wants to to give to everybody and you might have noticed when you we were reading through this section in verse 2 it, it refers to it as a Hebrew slave now why why say Hebrew slave as opposed to like Israelite slave uh, he's reminding them of what they were in Egypt, but they're not anymore. So they think, well, why are we not that anymore? Because of what God has done for us. You know, it's a, a way to highlight and to teach them about the grace of God, the redeeming love that purchased a people for himself who didn't even know that they needed to want that or, or to need that to happen for them, and they couldn't pay for it or do anything to get it. But verse 5 goes on to say, well, what if you have this situation where a slave, you tell them they can go free, and they say, well, I love my master, and I don't want to go free. Well, this is another picture of the gospel, another element of the gospel of God's redeeming love where the, the slaves love their master forever. And this was built into the nation of Israel, not merely to be a societal law but to be salvation instruction to people so they could understand what God's salvation was like how they did everything in their society was to communicate something about 
who their God was and how his salvation works. We also read of that section where it says, well, if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, and we have to be careful not to read our, our idea of you know, American slavery into that. Slavery wasn't something that was bad necessarily, even though you can have bad masters. Uh, again, so slavery was kind of more along the idea of paying a debt or being employed. So it's not, you know, if, if a man's daughter gets a job working somewhere, you can think of it more along that sort of line. But what the man is doing is he's selling his daughter for a better life, but because God and his people are of value to him, even if her future master is displeased with her, displeased with her she is to be redeemed anyway. So if you have a master who just says, you know, I don't want her, uh, I don't like her. God says, I love to redeem the people that other people don't like, that other people don't want. Uh, I'll redeem her. But she's not to go to a foreign people. She's to be of my people. This is where Egypt went wrong. You know, they, they didn't value human life. They didn't value them as living souls that can be redeemed even when they're displeasing to their masters. Now remember that you know, all of these slave laws are evangelism to the nations. So it talks about in Deuteronomy 4, 6 of these laws. It says, you, co- you shall keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You see, what Israel was to be as a nation, they they were to be an anti-fall nation. Uh, We're the people who are against the fall and everything that has come from it. Uh, We're the people who's moving back to the Garden of Eden, but forward to something that's even better than that. They're the people who are pointing back to God's original design and creation, but pointing forward to God's goal and that everything's going to enter his rest and to explain to them how that's going to work. You might think of the example of the queen of Sheba when she came to see Solomon living by God's law wisdom and looking at like, look at the greatness of your nation. Like, what's going on here? Solomon says, it's not the greatness of us, it's the greatness of our God that we want to point you to. So you could imagine, you know, the nation seeing Israel living like this and saying, well, why do you guys let your slaves be redeemed? We just force them into labor until they die. Well, the Israelites could explain, our God has graciously redeemed us. The reason that we allow others to to be redeemed, even if they're displeasing to their, their master, is that God redeemed us when we were displeasing to him. That's why we do that. And so the nations might say, well, well, what about this other situation where you have somebody that chooses to stay with their master even when he says that they can go free? Like, that's weird. People don't do stuff like that. Well, the Israelite might respond, well, because it reminds us that God is a good master that's to be loved forever. Like, we never want to leave him. We want to be with him permanently and forever. That's why we have slave laws that are like this. Honoring God and honoring parents and applying this honoring of all authority placed over someone that includes civil and employer. We're seeing that worked out here 
I think provides another sort of uh, hermeneutical lesson or Bible interpretation lesson here, which has to do with the, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. So you think, you know, the, the letter of the law, it reads, honor your parents. But the spirit of the law is to honor all authorities. So it extends out even into these slavery laws where you have a master who is an authority. So you couldn't just say, well, the letter of the law only says that I'm to honor my parents, but my master is a jerk and I don't have to honor him because it doesn't say honor your master. Well, that's a misunderstanding of the spirit of the law, which is to understand that you honor God by honoring him as the ultimate authority in every authority that's over you in this life. All right, we're going to do laws about personal injuries. This is going to have to be our last one that we look at today. Laws about personal injuries here in verses 12 to 36. The point being that people are made in God's image to respect God's image. We're made in God's image to respect God's image. And I think what I'll do is I'll work through talking through this this text and highlight a few verses throughout it and commend it to you uh, reading it in your chair on the deck later and meditating on it. In verses 12 to 14, we'll read those. It says, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death, but if he does not, but if he did not lie and wait for him, but let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him by deceit, you shall take him even from my altar that he may die. Here you see a sort of life for life principle. Uh, you, you see that God requires that for one who, who takes a life, now they end up giving a life. In verse 15, it says, He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And why, why the death penalty for striking a parent? Well, because it's striking at the foundation of God's society. It, it wouldn't just affect their parents, but everybody in that society. So for out of love for your neighbor, uh, you bring a severe penalty to, to display the worth of those who have been afflicted. You show the, the worthiness of family and what God thinks about it by having a, a punishment that's equivalent to the crime. So God is saying this is an extremely serious offense. As we talked about that idea of a wrong type of slavery being called kidnapping, you see that in verse 16. It says, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So this would condemn you know, American slavery as we've known it in history. Verse 17, and he who curses his father or his mother says, shall surely be put to death because they're to honor their parents. Verses 18 to 19, and if a man contend, and if men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside, of his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time, and he shall take care of him 
until he is completely healed. So you think, I mean, you're going to think twice before knocking a guy in the face if you think, man, if, he, <laughs> if he's not able to work, I have to pay, a, pay his wage and I have to be his doctor and take care of him the whole time. It's like, ah, maybe I won't hit him. <laughs> Huh, you see a little bit of the wisdom. You, you can do with that what you want in your parenting and figure out how you would enforce that in the home. <laughs> As you keep going through this section, you also see this concept of uh, there, there could be a right sort of punishment for slaves, but they were never to be uh, over-punished. Well, why weren't people to be over-punished? Because what it does is it, it demeans their personhood. Uh, you, when you carry out a, some sort of judgment or punishment, it, it's to uphold that this person is made in the image of God. You're not to demean them and to over-punish them. So what if a man over-punished his slave, which it refers to, and it says, you know, he is his property or he's his money. You know, the, the point that's being pointed out there is that uh, the, the master has something to lose if he overpunishes his slave, which is he has an investment. The, this guy makes money for him. Uh, he stands to, if he kills him, he loses a, a worker because of death. Or the other thing that could happen is emancipation. He gets to go free. If you overpunish your slave, he doesn't have to work for you anymore. So this would be used as a restraint toward the heart of evil masters. Now, verses 22 to 25, I'll read those as these are a really popular passage that uh, gets reiterated throughout Scripture that we refer to as the lex talionis, or the law of retribution. Verse 22, And if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband will set for him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Now, this isn't the idea if you, you, know, you hurt somebody in the eye, you get poked in the eye and you know, we don't like underpunish you by just slapping you on the hand. But the, the idea, I think, in, in modern terms, uh, Walter Kaiser tried to put it this way. He said it might read car bumper for car bumper and car fender for car fender. No one is to try a get rich quick off of such situations. And to notice also that this is to be a rule of thumb for the judges, not an authorization of personal vendetta or private retaliation. So he says you can't use this sort of law so that somebody can just get back at somebody else for something that was wrong, done wrong to them. Uh, the, the idea here is that you're not to underpunish or overpunish. Uh, there's to be a, a, a punishment that fits the crime, eye for eye. The offense is matched with a just punishment, which is left to the judges to try to decide based on God's word. This gets applied in verses 26 to 27 concerning a, a slave. If they're overpunished, they get freedom, and the master loses financially in that. It's applied to animals in verses 28 to 32. And in that section, this gets alluded to in Matthew 26, 15, where you'll remember this whole event with Judas. It says in Matthew 26, 15, what are you willing to give me to deliver him to you, and they weighed out 30 pieces 
of silver to him. But you see there's a connection that's being made into this text and that it was a hefty amount of money, so much money that you could buy a piece of land with it, which is exactly what Judas did in buying the potter's field. Verse 30, there it says, if a, if a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded for him. You see that for criminal neglect, a, a, a man can redeem his life if the slain one's family allows a substitute for him. You see this idea of salvation substitution here. Uh, the, the sum here is not in indemnified to indemnify the victim's family, but to ransom the man's life. And so these laws work out throughout the rest of this chapter to show just rest, retribution and just restitution, specific to deal with you know, animal lost or concerning an animal that kills other people or other animals and having a, a negligent owner. Well, what's, what's being taught here to sum up this message for the nation of Israel here is uh, they're, they're not, the goal isn't to have an optimal political system which would bring some sort of salvation to the world. That if, you know, Israel could just get their government to, in order, it would put the whole world in order. The, the law can't do that. Uh, only God can do that. God was not teaching them that the law could sanctify them or to sanctify other nations. Uh, the law can't make things holy. The law can't put things in order. The law can't sanctify things. Uh, only the holy God can make a holy people or a holy land. You have to remember, the law is an instructor. That's all that the law does. It's limited to doing that. The law is an instructor and not a sanctifier. And in the law, it gives you this instruction. It says, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, you shall surely keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Yahweh who makes you holy. This was the thing they misunderstood. They thought, the law makes us holy. But he says, well, what the law teaches you is that Yahweh makes you holy. You're not holy. He is, and he's the only one who can make you that. Right? He's the only one who can give you the position of being holy in him and bring you into the practice of living holy in him as well. There are some today who think that if modern governments would just apply the Mosaic law, it would sanctify their nation. It would bring about a sort of Christian culture of sorts. But what's required for salvation is not an optimal political system that makes people holy by enforcing some version of an understanding of the law of God. The government can't make anybody holy, but what's required is interchange at the individual level. If somebody would enter the kingdom of God, it doesn't say your government leaders must practice the law of God. If you would enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Not you must get the nations to enforce God's law on people as if he designed it to, to do that. It doesn't have that ability. 
Now, it is right for us in the New Testament church to oppose evil and corrupt political systems, but the transformation of society doesn't work from the top down. You see, it works from the bottom up. It begins with individuals being transformed by the gospel of, tri- of Christ who are committed to a local church that's set up as a city on a hill in a land of darkness. What we need is not social engineering, but spiritual change, which God alone does by his spirit, not by his law. As we've gone through this text, we've seen the grace of God in giving his law to Israel and how it instructed them in the great gospel realities that God is holy, that man is sinful and needs a God-man mediator. And that those who are killed by the law can be brought to new life in God, to have not only a new relationship to God, but also to have a new relationship to his law, that it's not a burden to them. It's wisdom to them. It's, It's a joy to them to know it and to aim to live by it because in it they see the reflection of God's character and that they can show other people God's character as they live by it so that they can see the wisdom of God lived out by us in real time so we can teach them what the Savior is like and how his salvation works. And as we've begun to see here, following God's instruction encompasses every, everything we do in life, every detail, every decision, even to thinking about slave laws, personal injury laws, personal property laws, societal laws and ideas of resting in God. This teaches us that we should have a biblical reason for absolutely every single thing that we do in life. And when we're able to do that, it prepares us to give a reason for the hope that is in us, should anybody ask, why do you do your dishes like that? Why do you live with your wife in an understanding way? (laughs) Why why do you parent like that? Uh, Why do you you drive your car like that? Uh, Why won't you be dishonest in your taxes? I mean, it's easy. Everybody does it. But you can just give a a biblical reason for why you do everything that you do in life because you understand how how the word of God applies to everything in your life. The reason that we do what we do, we want to be able to say, I do this like this because the character of my God is like this. The reason that I do this is because his salvation works like this. So may God help us to live out his wisdom so that others would come to know the wisdom of God, which is found in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our gracious God, we thank you for the wisdom of your word and I pray that we wouldn't fail to see your wisdom and to be satisfied in your character and the great things that you display to us and teach us and how these laws given so long ago show us your gracious redemption of people who are slaves to sin that can be made slaves in your family and more than slaves, but to be free and to be friends to have Christ as even our elder brother. To have such a privilege seems like something that we ought not even to be able to say because we're so unworthy to have you. But you have washed us. You have made us clean, sanctified us, justified us, given us the position of holiness and the practice to walk in it and live in it so that others would come to know you as the holy God who redeems sinners. 
Help us to live by your wisdom so that others could know you and be drawn into your kingdom. Amen. As we close our time of worship here and continue in our worship, I wanted to read from 2 Timothy 3. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good word. Even from Exodus 20 to 21, as I went through that, I thought, who knew that this part of Scripture was this good? I didn't until I learned about it, so I was happy to share that and have this time of fellowship together. The Lord bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you. You're dismissed.